Hey, this is Michael Neal, and you are listening to Frequency.fm. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Frequency Podcast. And I'm joined by Joe Brookhouse, who is being battered by weather in the West Coast while I just got buried in a dumping of snow in the East Coast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How are you doing, Joe? Good. I, I saw your post on Facebook that, I think it was on Facebook, that showed what yes. a true Nor'easter looks like. And mm-hmm. um, so when you use the term battered in terms of the weather that we've experienced here, um, it doesn't really compare. And people make fun of us in the northwest oh you've got a dusting of snow the city shuts down we, we we've gotten more than a dusting of snow this year and we, and we respond according to people who aren't used to that kind of weather you however mm-hmm. it this just doesn't compare to the weather you guys have where you're like oh we got 12 inches last night and we lost the dog or whatever you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah well the reality is with a nor'easter it's you know it's a northerly blast of winter weather with easterly uh, winds and it swirls around our island because our island's sort of on a tilt from the the mainland of Canada and um, the state of Maine would get similar weather but uh, no we we usually measure it in the wind velocity with snow attached to it so because I live on a hill in the country and my house faces east Um, the north side of my house gets blasted and then it swirls around my house and with that much snow falling like i would say 24 inches um i think that's what i what i saw this morning put it put it this way our snow plow that comes to blow us out takes about three or four passes and this thing's half the size of my house so there's a fair bit of snow that falls here um, but you know, because we're we're maybe ten minutes from the ocean, you get that extra bit of you know salt water blast hitting you, and uh, eighty kilometer, ninety kilometer an hour winds, so it adds up. Yeah, yeah. I and and I know that you know, there's many people who say, "Oh, Prince Edward Island, Anne of Green Gables, it's so beautiful." Like, yeah, hmm. like two months of the year, and the rest of the time <laughs> you're still trying to come up under out from under the the snow and i know that's that's some hyperbole i know that's hyperbole (laughs) yes but i'm a person who just i just don't do um i I don't mind winter so much as i don't like um that feeling of being trapped in darkness you know that comes along with the season and all and so when i think about where you live i think i could be a really good snowbird i could live there you know during the summer when it's nice and then i'd have to go back someplace you know, sunny and warm like Portland, you know, <laughs> the rest of the year. Well, there is definitely a large contingent of snowbirds, we call them, that go to Florida. Yeah, you know, you, yeah. They just take the I-95 or whatever straight south. Um, but there's an alert to being in a wintry wonderland, especially at Christmas time. But then on top of that, you know, there's snow days. There's, you know, forced rest that comes with being buried. Um, of yeah. course, there's a joke on the island that whenever a storm comes, you have to get your storm chips. So everyone has to go and get and stock up on potato chips. Not sure why that became a pastime. Okay. Um, but they actually have a brand called Storm Chips because people buy so many chips when storms come. 
That's funny. That's funny. You know, yeah. Here, when we knew the snow was coming, there was a run on our grocery stores. And and, mm-hmm. and to me, it's, it's not a natural disaster, people. And I, I laugh at folks. I'm like, do you feel like the snow will be around for so long that access to food will be an issue? <laughs> it, yeah, it's not like ju- just-in-time methods where you have just enough milk for the day. Like yeah. they did back in the 1900s. Yeah, it, yeah it's ridiculous. I don't know. People, <laughs> people make me laugh. But anyway, kind of reminds me of of the year 2000. Remember that the whole world was going to come to an end because we only had two digit uh, dates in computer systems. Yeah, that was great. I, I actually remember being up at 11:59 and starting to imagine what it would be like when the mobs of people came marching down and looting and taking over, you know, the planet or whatever. Obviously, (laughs) it didn't happen. Now, I will say, as somebody who's somewhat of an IT person, that um, when people say, oh, well, it was no big deal. What was all the uproar? Well, there were people on the technology side who were working very hard to ensure that there weren't going to be issues. So I want to give give them kudos. It's amazing how we go from weather to where we're at right now. Um, in just the span of a couple of minutes, we're really the, the, the level of talent that we have in terms of just random stuff is remarkable. That's my word, you know, but, remarkable. But come on, Joe, we, we just got verified on Facebook. I mean, we must be worth something. We are. That's right. We are. And I had no idea that we were getting verified. So we are like le- legitimate <laughs> now. So many years into the process and we're finally recognized. I, I'm humbled. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reality is, I mean, Facebook is where where moms and, you know, and like the female population tends to land there and Pinterest. Um, not so much on Twitter. I don't really have a lot of back and forth banter with females on Twitter. I mean, people have to correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe this is something that we can create a controversy about. Oh, let's do it. Yeah. You know, like, is, is is there really a female population on Twitter regularly engaging with people about serious issues? There's a there's a fair question. No, they're, they're there. I can tell you a couple right off the top of my head that I know are, are very active on Twitter and engaging in those things. Um, Audrey Assad, who we interviewed about this time last year, is, mm-hmm. uh, is incredibly active on there. Of course, um, she's uh, uh, operating at a level where me sending her a note would get lost within the, you know, the hundreds and hundreds of other responses that are there. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, the other person who's kind of a controversial person in her, her own right would be uh, Vicki Beeching, who's very outspoken right. and very active. She's a social media maven. So they're they're out there. Yeah. True. I, I guess I'm just talking about sort of regular. There are no daily... regular people. There are no regular people yeah. on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> It, it, it see, I would say, and we're not social media experts by any means, but I would say that um, that uh, Twitter has become, in some ways, more of a um, a celebrity bullhorn than it is a, a way that people interact from day to day, like they do, like on Facebook. Of course, Facebook itself yeah. has become this odd um, black hole of um, self uh, validation or, you know, attacks on other people, but that's a completely separate topic. Yeah. Well, on the fact that, that your content is, is driven by Facebook's algorithm, not by your content. Yeah. Cause I've done enough experiments on Facebook now to know that nobody will pay any attention to something unless 
on a certain person or a certain amount of people interact with it and then it becomes something actually important. You know, we've seen that with some of our, the press releases that we send out. Yeah. Where 95% of them go into, go into that 120 people saw it black hole and then one celebrity clicks like and all of a sudden three to 5,000 people see it. Yeah. Um, I see that as a bit silly. But what are yeah. you going to do? Right? I mean, they've got algorithms and yeah, it's uh, they're the experts and, and we're just here. But there's another piece of news that we should share. And I think what we were planning on doing a, a very a separate little announcement and I haven't recorded it yet. But um, we're set up on, is it Patreon? Is that how we pronounce it? That's right. Yep. Yeah, we're set up on Patreon. We already got a couple of folks that are um, that are spo- helping to sponsor the podcast. And um, thanks to Mark and Jesse. And uh, mm-hmm. and if, I haven't checked it for a while, so maybe some other folks too. But um, that's exciting. And it's it's um, nice to have people helping us out uh, in that way. And um, yeah, what do you have yeah, to say? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a huge blessing to uh, to have people that actually want to personally invest in what we're doing because obviously uh, people should know by now as a nonprofit our goal is not self-promotion per se it's a platform for others um, and really it's a platform to get the word out about who Jesus is and, yeah yeah um, that you know people of like like-minded faith um, trying to help other people uh, seek him so ultimately that's our goal and of course, with that, we want to do it with excellence, and we want to promote good art and um, talk to industry experts and talk to authors and creators. And I mean, we have a whole list of people that we're going to be talking to this year. Too many to mention right now. Um, but why don't we dive right into who we're actually you talk to today, um, who is an author and a blogger and an organizational leader, um, Carol Howard Merritt. Yeah. You want to tell me a bit about Carol? Well, sure. Um, gosh, I'm not sure where to start. I, I, well, I'll start here, and I just I explained it a little bit in the interview. But um, so she just released a book this week on Tuesday, and today is the 10th of February, um, called "Healing Spiritual Wounds." Showed up on my doorstep um, about a week and a half ago. I'm not, or two weeks ago. I'm trying to remember exactly. Anyway, I got the, it. Showed up on my doorstep. I opened the box and I looked at the title and I went, "Wow, okay, this is a timely." topic. Uh, It's something that I definitely want to know more about. And I didn't get very far in the book before I went, okay, now I I know I need to interview this author. And uh, Mm -hmm. I was able to arrange an interview just a couple of days later with her. And um, it it really is a topic that I think is appropriate for us, um, for us to to spend some time thinking about, you know, it's, it's not just about being a creative, it's about being a human. It's about being a Christ follower. It's about interacting with other people who um, who are in the church or standing just outside the church. Uh, anyway, I really enjoyed the conversation with Carol. She's also a um, a pastor, um, and uh, she she spent some time talking about her own um, her own spiritual wounds and moving past those. So, love talking to her. I could have talked to her all day, for that matter. Yeah, and she's um, she also leads. Well, she's a conference speaker, and she leads uh, a conference. I looked it up, and it's I think it's called an unconference. Oh, I don't know. That um, doesn't sound familiar to me. But you you probably did more research on her than I did. I was focused <laughs> on the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's UNCO, uh, which is it's 
self-titled open space unconference, quote unquote, that attracts church leaders across the denominations and generations. Um, it's been around since 2011, and it's, um, in their words, a growing community of participants um, meeting to generate ideas and develop plans for ministry. Um, now, of course, she's also a podcaster herself. She co-hosts uh, the thought-provoking podcast, God Complex Radio, uh, with another uh, pastor, Derek Weston. So she's she's in the podium as a speaker. She's in the pulpit, obviously, in the Presbyterian Church in the United States, um, travels and does a lot of these um, these conferences that she's the uh, the lead of. So definitely a well-rounded individual, and um, yeah, we we're blessed to have the opportunity for Joe to talk to her. So why don't we dive right into the interview with Carol Howard Mann. Hey everybody, it's Joe at Frequency. I'm extremely excited to chat with our guest this morning. Uh, she's an award-winning author, she's a speaker and a minister, Carol Howard Merritt. Uh, on Monday of this week, her new book, Healing Spiritual Wounds, arrived on my doorstep, courtesy of Harper One, um, and I knew immediately that I wanted, needed to bring her uh, onto the show, and, and here she is. So thank you so much for uh, coming at such uh, short notice, Carol. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. I'm not using hyperbole when I say that when the book arrived and I opened it up and saw the title, I realized that with um, the the current the current events that are going on in the world right now, especially in our nation, and and also my own experience uh, with spiritual wounds, that uh, I knew that I as soon as I saw it, that I was going to need to to chat with you. So I wondered. If maybe we could just start out and maybe give you some space to introduce yourself and uh, and introduce your book. Well, thank you. Um, my name's Carol Howard Merritt, and I have been a pastor for about twelve years. Or actually, it's getting longer than that. I'm getting old. It's almost twenty. Um, <laughs> That's a big so, difference. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I've, I've been a pastor for, for quite a while and um, started when I was 26 years old, and, and now it's been 19 years. So I began, though, my, my journey as a very conservative um, fundamentalist and went to Moody Bible Institute. And um, through that experience, I, I had this calling to ministry, but I didn't know what to do with that as a woman. So I was um, constantly frustrated and trying to figure out what to do with that calling. So uh, eventually I ended up going to seminary and um, serving churches and congregations. And um, I wrote this book, Healing Spiritual Wounds, out of my own uh out of my own wounds, out of my own hurts, but also because I had walked alongside so many people that had gone through similar things that I had. And I just felt like it was important to talk about the ways in which we can heal from the times when the church has damaged us, when spiritual leaders have caused harm, or when, gosh, we are in the midst of a political situation that we are in right now, where there is 
so much defensiveness and so much divide that we have a difficult time hearing each other. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, very well said. And again, I, I really feel like your book is is very timely. Um, in a very in a very practical sense, it it provides some specific exercises such as uh, meditations or art projects to assist the reader on on the road to healing. Um, but as you mentioned, you also walk alongside the reader using your own stories of of survival and healing. Um, why was it important for you to use that as a mechanism for introducing um, the the reader to some of these ideas? Well, I began the book as a memoir. Um, uh, I had met Mickey Maudlin, uh, who's uh, executive editor at Harper One, and um, I told him that I had gone from Moody Bible Institute to serving a congregation in downtown D.C., where you know, Michelle Obama uh, often came and served at our soup kitchen. And, wow. and he was very interested in that story, like how that transformation happened. So um, so I began typing out the story and, and um, ended up with hundreds and hundreds of papers of, you know, how I brushed my teeth on Tuesday morning. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, writing them hard is like so hard. And um, and kept submitting it to him, and he was saying, no, it's not quite right. So I called Lauren Winner, who wrote just so many excellent memoirs, and um, she wrote, uh, you know, Mudhouse Sabbath, and and um, and it just, you know, she's most recently wrote Still, and and she's just just the top. So I called her up. Didn't know her very well. Had only met her a couple of times. And I said, can you help me with this? Because I have no idea what I'm doing. And um, she was fantastic. She uh, she went through and, and said, you know, I, I knew I wanted the story of being wounded by the church and being healed by the church to be central. I knew that was my story that I wanted to tell. And, um, and so she said, well, okay, concentrate on how you're healed and then build the book around that and think about how you would teach this in a church. Mm. And so that was just the sort of nudge I needed to put it more in a workbook format so that um, people could read the narrative and then dig into their own lives. So, uh, so I really owe that to um, Lauren. And if you're reading the book and you're missing the parts about how I brushed my teeth on Tuesday afternoon, <laughs> you can, um, you know, blame Lauren for that. Maybe thank your editor. Because I yeah. had all kinds of, yeah, yeah, I had all kinds of just uh, uh, relentless, boring details in there. Well, I, so we thank your editor for that, and we thank. Um, so <laughs> we, uh, I have I've done some writing myself, and I think teeth brushing fits in there somewhere. <laughs> um, but uh, as as a church, I have found that we have a difficult time with folks that are survivors, and I use that term intentionally because 
we we have had history perhaps of being a bit dismissive of folks who have uh, uh, struggled with depression or mental illness or or mm-hmm. abuse, and uh, we don't necessarily know how to speak um, to speak to to them. And I think through your book, you are you're really providing a voice for the reader to understand that you as a leader in the church um, ha- have been on a similar journey. And that provides a form of, uh, of um, validation that what they're feeling is real. Um, early in the book, you provide a story um, where you discuss um, being at a cocktail party in Washington, D.C. and listening to a man discuss um, ha- his experience struggling with the church. And one of the things you discuss is how it's difficult to leave the church behind even when it's hurt you, which is sounds even a bit ironic. I wonder if you could just take a, a couple of minutes and just talk about the bit of the, the conflict that seems to exist between being hurt by the church and still feeling drawn to the church. Yeah, this was a, a person I met, um, just a complete stranger, and it was, he said something so powerful that stuck with me. And his story was that he was um, in the service, or his parents were in the service, and he was a military child, and so he was being um, going from place to place, and they wouldn't ever go to a particular denomination, they, uh, you know, particular uh, type of church. They would just go to the military um, uh, chapel, yeah. and so they were stationed in Texas, and he would go to the chapel and. They were constantly talking about the sin of homosexuality, mm. and um, and he knew he was gay, and so he was struggling with it, and he didn't know what to do, and so um, he was a young teenage boy, and having all these feelings, and so he he just cut himself off from being gay. You know, just decided he's not gay, and it didn't work. Yeah. You know, he was he was cutting himself off, and so, but but he kept struggling and kept going, and then at at a point when he realized this this isn't working, he cut himself off from being Christian, right? And decided he's not going to be a Christian anymore. And so he spent a few years doing that and um and we were in this party and he was like it's not working i i i i hate christianity i hate what it did to me um he almost committed suicide Mm. when he was trying to uh not be gay and um he said i hate that it did it this to me but i am I'm a religious person. I'm a faithful person. And so he couldn't figure out how to be whole again. So we had talked about, um, uh, he said, you know, cutting off Christianity was like cutting off a limb. Yeah. And, and I, I, I really resonated with him saying that. And, and we kind of talked about, well, how do we, reclaim those 
parts of our lives while reclaiming our faith and who we used to be and our past and um, really helped me with that. Um, and we talked about the prayer of Shalom, and it's this beautiful Hebrew prayer, and it's uh, just peace. But it's not just peace. It also means wholeness. It has all kinds of um, beautiful echoes and resonances in different uh, arenas. So it's it's often used uh, in diplomacy. It even has kind of a root of, um, uh, it has the same root as the Hebrew word, it was paid for. Yeah. So there's even an economic aspect to this word. And so we just, you know, began to use that as our meditation of um, praying for wholeness, being able to reclaim our past, being able to reclaim who we are, and um, really living a life of peace in that sense. Very well said. I grabbed a couple of quotes from your book, and you'll forgive me if I maybe share them a bit out of context, but um, I found... Uh, this more than some books that I've read lately that I, I had to use the highlighter a lot uh, because I knew that when I went home, I, I needed to share these with my wife. If you will uh, bear with me, I'm going to throw out the quote. You'll have to guess where it is in the book. But um, <laughs> but um, these stood out to me and wondered if maybe you could uh, speak to them a little bit. And if you say no, that's fine. I'll edit it out. <laughs> um, so here's one. Um, Sometimes our abusive experiences forged our divine images because we thought that God was the force behind the harm instead of realizing that God was being wounded alongside us. Yeah, yeah. I I think we as Americans have a difficulty with this oftentimes. I'm, you know, a white American who has often... um, thought of God in a victorious sense as, um, you know, the person who wins. And one thing that was very, very difficult for me um, was to sort of unhinge that from a God who suffers alongside us. So my personal experience was I had, there was a lot of violence in our home. And our, my father was um, a a beautiful man in many ways. He was a NASA scientist. He was a genius. He um, had all sorts of patents, very creative. But he was also, he had uh, a a mental illness. And so he had this kind of desperate sense of abandonment and um, and he would uh, he would act out on that and so we were always kind of walking on eggshells worrying when when dad was gonna react so my father um, I was very much had an image of God that was deeply rooted and related to my dad and, um, you know, we, we pray our Father who art in heaven. Mm-hmm. We often talk about God as, as our dad. Yes. And so I had this difficult time because 
um, I had a hard time separating myself from this man whom I loved very much, but who was also abusive in our home. And so, um, so that was, that was really hard for me. Yes. Uh, because I imagined God as extremely abusive and God as somebody who is vengeful and God who was there ready to lash out and punish me any time um, that I would have uh, any difficulty in my life. So part of that quote came from this realization, and I learned this a lot from from uh, theologians like James Cone. They talked about the African-American experience and the cross and the lynching tree. And, and, and they begin to interpret history in their own experience a little differently because they begin to see God as the God on the lynching tree. Yes, yeah. As God crucified, as that flesh and blood enduring suffering. And so it helped me to shift my understanding of where God was at that moment. God was not the person who was abusing me. God was the person who was being abused alongside me. I, th- I think that's such a powerful statement because, um, you know, speaking with my wife is, you know, as I'm up in front as a worship leader and I'm praying for the congregation, she occasionally reminds me that the image of Father uh, God as Father, as a loving Father, is foreign to many people. And it's hard to decouple their negative experiences with their own fathers or the lack of a father um, to reconcile that with a loving God. And this this quote, to me, that coming alongside piece of it is relevatory in many ways. And I hope that that's something that resonates with people who do have that fractured relationship with God because of their own um, relationships um, where they have created their own image of God based on their earthly relationships. So that was that stood out for me very strongly. If you don't mind a small departure, um, I believe your dad was diagnosed with um, BPD, uh, borderline personality disorder. Um, right. And yeah. um, what's interesting, there's... Um, a couple of people uh, in my life who are also BPD. And this leads me to another area of uh, another story in the book, and I'll kind of walk into it this way, that a lot of times we seek to understand people, to understand their motivations, because we it's hard to justify decisions they make. Your, your father's abuse of your family, it's it's hard to reconcile that. Where does that come from? What's the motivation? And when you start to understand that somebody is suffering from something like BPD and what how that presents itself, it makes it a little easier to go to forgive yourself for not understanding that individual and why why they're abusive. I want to lead that into your discussion in the book about your experience at Moody Bible with evangelism and how you solved the problem somewhat of trying to fill out that sheet of paper with people you evangelized um, through kind of a unique approach. Would you share that with folks? Yeah. So <laughs> we were given this, um, we were given this kind of graph and, and it, it had, you know, the empty slots. And basically you were to go out to a public place 
and evangelize people. And um, we were given these empty slots. We were supposed to put their name and their, uh, and, and basically you were trying to lead them to Jesus. And um, different organizations did this in different ways. So sometimes, uh, like I, I went with Campus Crusade for Christ. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they still do this, but they, they like had us pretend we were Gallup poll surveyors. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of ridiculous because we were completely lying, you know. But they had all kinds of ways to tell us that we weren't lying. But um, so, so we had to go out and fill out this graph. And I think it was 10, maybe 12 or something people. And I'm an introvert. Yeah. Like going up to a, a stranger and just talking to them is, that's like pulling a tooth, you know, like my front tooth. In yeah, the middle. <laughs> it's awful. I mean, I can do it if it's like my job as a pastor, but, but as far as just being, you know, sent out in the middle to talk to strangers. But I had to do this graph, and I didn't know how to go about it. Um, uh, so I started just um, drawing people's faces because, you know, I, I would just ask them if I could do a portrait of them. And, um, and that way I could sit down and I could spend some time with them. And naturally, like, the conversation would flow. Yeah. They would ask me, you know, where do you go to school? And I would tell them. They would ask me, well, what, you know, why, why are you going to Moody? And, and I could explain them, to them what, what I was hoping to do. But during that time, um, I, you know, I never, I never converted anyone. Right. It's sad. <laughs> <laughs> I was always terrible at that. <laughs> But during that time, um, I I began to really fall in love with people. Yeah. And I spent time with them, uh, just you know, noticing the curve of their chin and their face. And and I'm not a great, I'm not great at it. I'm not great at doing portraits. Um, but it it had me. I was able to just spend this time with them and, and listen to their story and the beauty of their story and where they were in their lives. And, and, um, and it helped me to really just fall in love. And I remember going back and sometimes I would give them the, um, the, the portrait at the end. Sometimes they would look at me with pity in their eyes and tell me <laughs> that I could keep it. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. any artistic endeavor, you know, you're, you're, you're just, uh, you're just working yeah. um, to kind of get the best out of people. And, and I came home and I had these sketches and I was like preparing to hand in my graph. And I just realized, like, man, I had fallen in love with these people in different ways. And then I imagined what I was being taught. And um, I had a wonderful evangelism teacher. I'm not saying that he believed this. Right. But I was basically being taught that... um, 
that all of these people were going to hell. And everybody was going to hell. And I just had this image of God, our creator, our great artist, just making and forming these beautiful creatures, falling in love with them. And of course, God has the capacity of falling in love with people much more than I do. So God is creating these people and falling in in love with them and then saying, you know what, you're all going to hell unless you say, you know, the sinner's prayer and repeat after this poor student who just, you know, came to talk to you. (laughs) (laughs) It didn't make sense. I mean, as an artist, as a creative person, it made no sense. I mean, I could barely throw away these uh, these terrible sketches of them to imagine that God would send everyone to an eternity of torture. So it really changed my view of people. Um, it made me realize that maybe sharing the good news shouldn't be you know, repeat this prayer after me or you're going to hell for an eternity, but should be um, learning to love one another and live that abundant life with each other alongside one another. And to me, that's maybe the most timely of messages as as we are we can be so fractured currently and there's so much poison in social media these days that that if you... Um, emulate Christ and his desire to know people and his refusal to, you know, as the woman touched his robe and was healed from 12 12 years of bleeding, he could have just let that go, but he had to know her. That if we take the time to know people, that we will love them and they don't become a project, they become human. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that's my hope that whether you're somebody who's on the, the road to spiritual um, healing, that you, whether you've been wounded or somebody in your life has, or you just want to be more aware of how you can, um, as a pastor or a church leader, engage with people um, and help them on that road. This book is, uh, it's first of all, it's beautifully written. You're a wonderful writer. I want to affirm you for that, Carol. <laughs> but thank you, but, thank you. But your stories and then just the practical nature of the book really, I think, are a balm that we need. Um, today in this environment. And uh, the book comes out, Healing Spiritual Wounds comes out February 7th. So um, it'll be on the heels of the release of this interview. Uh, folks, pick it up. Um, it's it's not a difficult read. It's very practical, beautifully written. Um, and as, as we're kind of wrapping up, Carol, I'm going to throw a random question at you that has nothing to do with your book. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. So I want you to share with me, and I do this to everybody, a guilty pleasure, whether it's uh, something you're watching on TV, a movie, music you're listening to, something that maybe is difficult for us to reconcile with the person that we've just talked to. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, let's see. Oh, I've got a good one. This is going to completely ruin my credibility, though. Is that okay? Absolutely. Is that what you want? Yeah. You want me to, like, ruin my credibility? Okay. So my daughter has become a huge South Park fan. Oh, good. And, like, I watched it when I was young, you know, younger, um, and it first came out. But I'm kind of reliving that. And it's horrible. It's horrible. Yes. But, you know, 
my guilty pleasure for sure. <laughs> so, so there you go. I've completely uh, probably ruined the credibility of myself in, in the <laughs> eyes of most. No, I don't think so. Not. The thing is, is just like you share your stories in the book, knowing that you're human um, and you can enjoy stuff that's a little off the radar or, you know, borderline inappropriate. Love it. <laughs> My mom always rolls her eyes and says, I grew out of potty humor when I was 12. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you can relate to, you know, I'm a 46-year-old man. Potty humor, I got an 8-year-old boy. It is just a part of life. And sometimes we have to talk about how inappropriate it is. And sometimes a good scatological joke with an eight-year-old is just what you need to cure the blues. So, <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I, I'll tell you what, I could talk to you probably for hours because there's, I have a list of things that I would just want to touch on. But I want to respect your time and I want to respect the listener's time as well. But again, as we're wrapping up, I want to encourage people Check out the book. It's available through Harper One. I'm sure you can get it just about any place where books are sold. It's an ebook on uh, Amazon. Um, uh, I think you can go directly to the Harper One website and uh, and order it from there as well. But thank you for taking the time with us this morning. I've really enjoyed chatting with you. Well, thank you so much for taking the time with the book, and and uh, and I really appreciate your work and all that you do. So there's the interview with Carol. I hope you folks enjoyed it. I hope you got some good stuff out of it. I hope you got enough out of it that it, it intrigues you to to pick up the book. As I mentioned in the interview, I think it's something as a resource, not just for you as somebody who's been wounded, but maybe for church leadership uh, to consider as we are I'm trying to understand what kind of dialogue to have with people who have been wounded by the church. Yeah, and and as a pastor in a church, um, the reality is the church is full of sinners. So this yeah. is a very this is a very timely topic because um, in a lot of cases, and I believe she even studied at a what they would call a fundamentalist type of a environment, um, where yeah. there's a lot of um, allowance for bad behavior. Pardon the expression. And, um, yeah. you know, sort of male domination as opposed to complementarian type views, um, you know, where women are valued and important in the church. Um, and uh, it's it's not necessarily even about that. It's about the reality of what happens when things go bad in church. And do is there a spiritual leadership in place to be able to deal with that? And unfortunately, in a lot of church contexts, it was just the wrong people or, or not strong leaders or things that can happen in ministry life because people either like power control or, or um, domination of some kind from, and I've seen it in ministry from as low a level as somebody who handles the library in a church that can split a, yeah. ch split a church and divide a church over poor behavior because they weren't getting a hundred dollars more a year to buy books, um, all the way up to not supporting the pastoral leadership. I mean, it's everywhere. And unfortunately there's a lot of wounded people because they either didn't understand what was going on or were personally wounded by, you know, um, sinful behavior in general. So I think, yeah, definitely it's worth the read. Healing spiritual wounds is the book and it just came out 
And um, that's not a paraphrase on the book per se, because I haven't personally read it. Um, but I can tell you from ministry experience, and I know you can too, Joe, that um, the reality of church life is it's it's an open public community and it's it's vulnerable. And, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. we, we need Jesus <laughs> more and more every day. It's good to be reminded of that. Uh, we are we we are not self sufficient, mm-hmm. um, no matter what we may think, or or maybe we don't even think about it. Well, and anyway, and the reality uh, is, church is important still. is It's still relevant, and yeah. you know we need to heal from these wounds and not just walk away from the church just because of of a circumstance or a person. So yeah, that's definitely. Um, people are still seeking truth. And I think that's a good thing. And that's why we exist to help get, you know, good information and good truth out there. Well, on that note, one, I want to say one more thing and then we'll cut out because I have to get to my day job. Um, and that is, you may notice that in our last episode, we talked about the forthcoming episode with, uh, with Greg Goldie. Um, it turns out we needed to, to shelve that, uh, the, uh, um, the, uh, the company with, or the publisher with whom he was working apparently um, went kaput. And so he's uh, working to shop that uh, book elsewhere, but he wanted us to go ahead and uh, put a hold on that for the time being. Mm-hmm. So um, if you were wondering why Greg's interview is not queued up, it's because we had recorded the episode, we were all ready to roll. And then the day before he's like, wait, put a hold on it. <laughs> so Greg, we, we wish you the best and uh, we, we look forward to getting a, an update from you on what's going on with the book. Mm-hmm. But uh, in the meantime, here's a book with uh, with Carol. And uh, we got a couple more uh, fun episodes coming up here in the, the next couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. And on top of that, I'm going to be interviewing some artists uh, in, in Eastern Canada, nominated for some awards here. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that. And I'll be working um, likely with uh, the Billy Graham Association on something that's happening here in the island in the fall. Uh, but part of that nice. part of that means working with uh, local artists and leaders um, that I want to have on the podcast. Um, one of them, ironically, is actually a band from the '80s called Haywire. I don't, nice. You remember Haywire, Joe? No, no idea who they are, but that's cool. <laughs> well, I'll look them up later. They were on. They were nationwide in the '80s. Um, anyways, one of the the bandmates uh, runs a studio on the island here, and he's a believer, and he's uh, going to be involved in this. So I'm hoping to do sort of an '80s retro um, podcast and talk to him and uh, a number of other artists here. So yeah, fun times ahead. Awesome. All right, I'm going to go. All right, you should go. Well, and uh, uh, stay stay tuned. The freak at frequency dot or sorry not at frequency dot fm at frequency fm on twitter and uh, frequency fm on facebook or frequency dot fm is our website good job dan <laughs> <laughs> have a good one folks we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks okay <laughs> <laughs>